Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Some of the psalms we have been singing are talking about warfare, but our ultimate enemy is Satan and all of his uh, demonic hosts. Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. Hear the word of God. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to grow not just in our understanding of it, but in our ability to trust you and to live out your word in this wicked world. And we pray that you would anoint my feeble lips and enable me to clearly, accurately bring the word and that you would quicken the word to each one of our hearts. Mix it with faith within us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we've come to the third example of high-level spiritual warfare. And let me just quickly list those out for you. In chapter 8, we had Peter confronting Simon Magus. And the demon that was in Simon Magus, the sorcerer, controlled the whole region of Samaria. So uh, that confrontation opened the whole uh, region to the gospel. Now, when we speak about high-level Uh, spiritual warfare, we're talking high level because it's confronting a demon prince that's over a city or a region or over a country. Second example was in Acts chapter 13 when Paul demonstrated the power of God against the sorcerer Elymas who had uh, the magistrate Sergius Paulus under his control. Now when Sergius Paulus was freed from that demonic uh, influence, again, that whole region was open to the gospel. And then you've got the example here, and you've got one more example in chapter 19. Some people think there's a couple other examples. I think probably these are the only ones that are there. But, and I think this is a very important but, from 30 A.D. to 50 A.D., which is the year that this is being written, that's 20 years of missions, there are only three examples so far, and then one more in chapter 19, in which uh, anybody's engaging in this high-level spiritual warfare. And I think this by itself ought to warn us about the enormous amount of time and effort that is being expended in this kind of warfare by C. Peter Wagner and other mapping enthusiasts and these are, these are good men, and they're doing some good things. But I just don't see uh, Paul engaging, just going out looking for trouble, 
uh, like these people, go from city to city, mapping places out and trying to figure out the name of a demonic uh, prince over an area and then trying to uh, confront him. I just don't see Paul engaging in that. Uh, he only engaged in it when uh, he was led by the Lord to do so. On the other hand, this is the third example in the book of engaging in high-level spiritual warfare. And so we shouldn't go to the other extreme that some people have gone to in saying we can never confront uh, principalities and powers uh, like, uh, 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 like this. And uh, there are a lot of people who have gone to this opposite extreme and they just ignore it altogether. There is one more example, chapter 19. But down through history, God has led missionaries to cut down a sacred grove or another way, confront a demonic prince, as it were, kind of slapping that demon on the side of the head and saying this whole territory is claimed for King Jesus. And I think this passage here helps us to avoid both extremes. And uh, I think they definitely are extremes. It is terribly dangerous to rush in where angels fear to tread. I've known um, a, a number of people, actually, who have become demonized because they have just flaunted themselves in front of demonic strongholds and uh, just did not know the power that they were dealing with. Now, we do have authority in Jesus, but I tell you, when you're confronting demons, you better have some prayer covering. You better have your sins confessed up. Uh, you better have the okay of the Lord or you're going to be a sitting target. On the other hand, when God does call us to confront demons, uh, it's encouraging to know that we have all of the power of heaven on our side. He told the 70 disciples in Luke 10 and verse 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and I want you to get this phrase, and over all the power of the enemy. That's an all-inclusive phrase, over all the power of the enemy. Even the strongholds of the strongest demons can be taken on if we are indeed led by God uh, to be confronting them. And we're going to be seeing, this is not just going to be an academic exercise this morning. We're, we're confronting more and more of the demonic uh, in America. Well, let's look first of all at the reality of demonic power in the world. There are some Christians who just scoff at the idea of casting out uh, demons. In fact, I've got a, a book on my shelf that was required reading in missions class in college. And it actually is a wonderful book, looking at the method, methodology that Paul used in missions. Uh, fabulous. But I was shocked when I read this book that this guy did not believe demons even existed. What he thought was these are superstitions of the people and the gospel is powerful to drive these superstitions out. And uh, I, I, I'm going to tell you that there's no way that that could be. Notice in verse 16, it says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. doesn't say that she had a mental illness. doesn't say she thought she had a spirit of divination. doesn't say Paul thought it or the crowd thought it or that Paul was doing away with her you know, superstition. It's quite clear in the text she's possessed by a spirit of divination. Luke's writing that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the author that I uh, just talked about uh, earlier, and, and he's a good guy in many ways. It just really surprised me when I, when I found this out. But uh, this author is basically saying he doesn't even believe there is such a thing as demons. But when you're going into a region, you need to take the belief that's there very seriously. So he said, in effect, Paul is saying, Okay, so you're afflicted with all of these demons. All you need to do is simply believe the gospel 
and those metaphorical demons will vanish from your life because of the power of God's gospel. And so they don't exist, but whether people believe it, you know, even if you believe in demons, that's just as bad as the existence of demons and the gospel, you know, chases those kinds of concepts out. Well, that is baloney. That is liberalism. That's a denial of the supernatural. And uh, I think we just need to take the text at face value. She's possessed by a spirit. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, those spirits are called demons. They are fallen angels. There was about a third of the angels that fell with uh, Lucifer, uh, I think somewhere on the seventh day or sometime after that of, of creation. But they, they fell. And according to the book of Revelation, there are hundreds of millions of these demons all over the world. Uh, just as one example, in the book of Revelation, it mentions one army that was located at the river Euphrates that had 200 million demons right there. And there were other armies located elsewhere. And when you look at all of the evidence of the New Testament, there are so many demons out there. There's plenty enough to go around. And uh, it would not surprise me if there is not a week that goes by when you are not afflicted by or tempted by uh, at least some lower level uh, common uh, demon or spirit that is out there. Now, this spirit had a name. His name was Python. It took on the name of the Python snake. In fact, I'd just like you to look at the bottom of your outlines. Uh, look at the footnote there. I'm just going to read that. The word for divination is literally Python, the spirit of divination that controlled the oracle of Delphi on the seventh of every month. Thus, F.F. F. Bruce says... She is described by Luke as having a Pythonic spirit or being a Pythoness, that is, a person inspired by Apollo, the Greek deity specially associated with the giving of oracles, who was worshipped as the Pythian god at the oracular shrine of Delphi in central Greece. Uh, William Hendrickson writes, she had a spirit called Python. And I list some other commentaries that show this was not an ordinary demon. This was a demon that had a stronghold over the whole country of Greece and the country of Macedonia. Uh, very famous. In fact, uh, the whole world pretty much knew about the famous uh, Oracle of Delphi where this woman, once a month, would get possessed by this demon and would speak messages to, uh, to people. And this demon would travel to different spots uh, in Greece and Macedonia. So what's happening here is Paul is pressing into the territories that were controlled by Python and eventually the gospel is going to conquer and take over even the stronghold of Python in Delphi itself. But this is his first confrontation with the strong and influential spirit. Now next, I want you to notice Luke is not in the least bit embarrassed with saying that there is such a thing as fortune-telling. There is such a thing as being able to give information people wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to have. The Greek word for fortune-telling means to prophesy, to be a mouthpiece for a spirit, and or to tell the future. Here's what F.F. F. Bruce says. The girl's involuntary utterances were regarded as the voice of the God, and she was thus much in demand by people who wished to have their fortunes told or to receive information or advice which they believed could be supplied from such a source, unquote. And I want you to notice that the text does not say she was a fake. doesn't say that she was a good guesser or that she was just superstitious. She was actually possessed 
by a spirit of divination. There is such a thing. The Old Testament talks about it all the time. And this demon was so good that the girl made her masters lots of money. Now, people don't tend to pay lots of money for, um, you know, prognosticators who aren't uh, much better than the weather forecasters. Uh, not to put down, well, I guess it is to put down weather forecasters, but they're wrong just about as much as they're right. And they've got all this technology, you know, looking at the, the weather maps out there. But uh, these, these psychics are so good that people will pay a lot of money to have them tell things. And they aren't 100% accurate like biblical prophets were. Biblical prophets, the, the, the test for a prophet, New Testament, Old Testament, was 100% accuracy. They're a false prophet if they don't have 100% accuracy, okay? These prophets uh, or psychics, whatever you want to call them, they're upwards of 80% accurate which is a much lower bar. Uh, the Old Testament over and over assumes that demons, though, can tell fortunes and absolutely forbids God's people from visiting them. You shouldn't even go to see them out of curiosity. Why? Because there really are demons there. They are dangerous. Now, let me give you an example of a modern fortune teller who's been quite popular and has been studied by scientists uh, over and over again. Newsweek reported... It was a phone-in time on radio station KCMO in Kansas City. Mr. Hoy, lisped a woman caller, my false teeth are missing. Can you figure out where they are? David Hoy, KCMO's guest expert in extrasensory perception, needed only a few seconds to decipher what he calls his ESP flash. Your dog got them and put them under the stove, he confidently informed them. Would you go check and see? She did and found her bridge where Hoy said it was. You might, as a skeptic, and I would be a skeptic too, ordinarily, I, I say, oh, well, yeah, somebody got paid to call in, and this is all staged and everything. And actually, when you analyze the evidence at the time, I think it would be very difficult for them to have staged this. But Hoy and many other psychics like him, some of them are just fakes, and they've been very easily disproved. But there have been a number who have been studied over and over and over again in controlled environments by these scientists, and they've not been able to figure out. In fact, um, James Randi, I've got um, some of his books. He's a, a great guy for, he's, he's not a believer, but for, you know, poo-pooing and explaining away in scientific terms some of the paranormal that is out there. He's not been able to touch Hoy. He's not been able to touch some of the other psychics who have been uh, used by Satan. Uh, this guy has been able to give all kinds of facts about people that he wouldn't otherwise be able to, to know. It wasn't just finding things. He made uh, numerous accurate prophecies. Let me give you an example. On October 31, 1967, he was on KDKA radio in Pittsburgh. He said this, Within 60 days, a bridge spanning the Ohio River will collapse with tremendous loss of life. It will be brought out after the collapse that 18 months before, a heavily laden barge going upriver had hit a major pylon of the bridge, backed up, and gone on without reporting the incident. Well, 30, 37 days later, the Silver Bridge over the Ohio River collapsed during peak Christmas shopping rush hour. Twelve people were killed. It wasn't as many as could have been killed uh, at that time. And when they did an investigation, they found that it was exactly the way Hoy had said now, demons, I don't think, can really know the future. They can guess. They can produce some things in the future. What's going on here? He made his 
He made his prediction. 37 days later it happened, but remember what he said is that 18 months before a barge would have hit. And it was exactly 18 months before. So these demons already knew that the barge had hit the pylon, backed up, gone on, had not reported it. They're able to give this information to Hoy. And within a window of time, they're able to predict this. You know, they could see how weakened the pylon was. Maybe they helped to cause it themselves. Who knows? But Hoy was given information he would not otherwise uh, be able to have had. So in this sense, it's not maybe truly a prophecy. I mean, it is in a sense, but in a sense, the demons already knew, you know, what could what could happen. Now, there are thousands of psychics that I could have used to illustrate this, but I've picked Hoy because of his interesting background. He was a Christian pastor for many years. He eventually gave, gave, gave it all up, but he grew up a Southern Baptist. He was the son of a pastor, attended Bob Jones University, which is a fundamentalistic uh, university. He graduated from Southern Seminary, became a missionary for a number of years in Brazil. All through this time, he was able to predict the future. Now, there were other people who thought that he was a prophet. Must be, you know, he's very gifted in this. And um, uh, he didn't think so. I think he was skeptical of the supernatural. He just chalked it up to being um, scientific, and he's going the ESP uh, route. Uh, Later, he worked at Calvary Baptist Church in New York. He met a pianist who went to Juilliard School of Music. Now, this pianist tried to get him involved in the occult and tarot uh, cards and numerology and astrology and things like that because he said, what you're experiencing is exactly what we experience. And he just poo-pooed that. He wasn't interested in that. He said, no, this can all be explained scientifically. But listen to this interesting story of the dangers of failing to take seriously the demonic. And I'm quoting from Gary North's book, Unholy Spirits. During his time in the mission field in Brazil, he attended a voodoo ceremony out of curiosity. He kept returning to the all-night sessions of dancing, rhythms, and ecstatic outpourings. He was fascinated by the fact that glowing coals could be placed on the bodies of ecstatic worshipers, leaving no scars, producing no pain. He saw the priestess pick up a scorpion with her mouth without being stung. He watched her tell the color of a cloth placed in her hand while she was bandaged around her eyes. Once, she even hexed him mildly. She asked him to hold out his hand, fingers stiff and spread apart, and when she opened her hand and touched his palm to palm, he was subsequently unable to close his fist. His fingers were frozen. Finally, she touched his hand again and his muscles relaxed. On one occasion, he explained to her that he was a Christian missionary, and she replied, You know belong to them. You belong to us. She turned out to be a prophet. Not long thereafter, Hoy left the ministry. Hoy predicted that President Johnson would not run again the next year. He predicted that Jackie Kennedy would marry a wealthy Greek shipping magnate. Now, how would he know stuff like that? Well, people could say, well, maybe, maybe, you know, there were demons that kind of messed with Johnson's head and got him so he wasn't interested in going. Maybe he worked with Jackie O'Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis and get them infatuated with with each other. We don't know. But we do know that he was able to do all kinds, thousands of predictions like this with about 80% accuracy. Uh, Not the biblical uh, standard for prophecy. It's about the highest that any psychic can claim. It's about 80% for future things, and sometimes it can be a little bit higher for 
you know, finding, uh, you know, where stuff is. Because he'd go into schools and uh, uh, he'd across the nation say, okay, this school, this team is going to win. This team is going to win on that one. And it was just amazing the accuracy that uh, he would have. He would say, somebody would report, uh, the police would report, stolen property. And he would say exactly where they could find it. In one case, it was found in a locker. And they opened the locker. Sure enough, there's where the, uh, there's where the stuff was at. Um, but I bring this up because there are psychics everywhere in America. There are 13 psychics who are making a good living in Omaha. Okay? There's numerous other professionals whose powers are from demons, and I believe that at least some charismatic prophecies have all of the fingerprints of the demonic uh, all over it. Uh, like this Christian guy named Hoy, they use demons for their extra knowledge, and the Bible warns about this, that there will be false prophets who will come up. Now, I'm not saying all that people who claim to be prophets do is from the demonic. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying watch out. If you don't believe this kind of thing happens, you got your head in the sand. Really, you do. So point number one is that demonic power is real. It is dangerous. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God warned people, don't go to astrologers, psychics, foretellers, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And there are Christians, you know, just for a lark, they're at a... They're at a uh, you know, a fair or something like that, and there's somebody that reads your fortunes, you know, over a crystal ball, and they'll just go in, you know, just to have fun, see what's going on. You are playing with fire when you do stuff like that. Scripture says, don't even visit them. Next, I want you to notice the control that Python had in this culture. Now, it's first of all obvious he had control of the girl because it says he possessed her. They may have thought they had control over her, but she's really a slave of Satan. She is a pawn in Satan's hand. She can't help what she is doing. Uh, she's going all day hollering out this prophecy. Now, maybe even these other people, uh, the masters, wish that they could use her to make some money because they're sure not making money over this. But this demon is totally in control of her. Second, the masters of this girl who are making a fortune off of her are controlled by the demon. Now, they may think they have the demon in a box. And certainly they're making a, a lot of money uh, off of uh, uh, this girl, uh, just to give you an idea of the kind of money that they were making, notice that it says her master's plural. In other words, this was a joint venture. It took several people to raise the capital to be able to buy this girl. That's how valuable she was. Okay, and that's why they're so ticked off when they, you know, when they lose their their investment here. So anyway. They think that they're really in control of this whole situation, but they're playing with fire. And as we'll see in verse 19, the demonic makes these masters lash out at Paul. They're simply tools in Satan's hand. In John 8, just as one example, Jesus told the Pharisees who thought that they were free, so you're not free at all. You are slaves of sin. You are slaves of Satan. And then he goes on to make this statement. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Now, they think it's only them who has the hatred and the persecution, these desires. But what Christ is saying, these passions, these emotions that are rising up within you, it's Satan doing that. It's Satan's desires being worked through you. And that's what's going on in this passage. Now, since Paul explicitly calls this demon Python, he was identifying what all Greeks knew 
uh, was the god Apollo. Anybody who read, um, you know, the, the original Greek back in those days, they would have known exactly who Paul was referring to. I've already read footnote one to that effect. So it's not an ordinary demon. This was a demon that Satan had assigned this whole territory to, to be able to control. And if you doubt whether there are territorial spirits who control certain areas, read Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13, which speaks of the demonic prince over Persia, or read Daniel 10 verse 20, which speaks of the demonic prince which is assigned to Greece. I mean, there are clearly demonic princes assigned to various regions. And so what's going on here is when Paul casts out this demon, Satan's kingdom is taking a hit. It becomes obvious to all any competition that's going to happen, the true God of all the earth is stronger than Python. Now, obviously, Python's not, you know, totally conquered yet. Uh, he's, uh, he's taking a hit, but he's going to do everything in his power to maintain control of the territory that he has uh, been assigned to. And it explains some of the persecution that's going to be coming up in the next chapters. Now take a look at verse 17. You might wonder why a demon of such magnitude would advertise true servants of God and the true gospel. It says, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. You would think that would be self-defeating. They hate the gospel. So why is this demon saying these are true servants of God and they're going to be proclaiming to us the way of salvation? It just doesn't sound like something a demon would do. But demons are sly and sometimes they will use the truth to try to deceive people. Here's what I believe was going on. I believe Python knows there is no way he's going to be able to keep the gospel out of, their, out of his region. He's probably already had reports from other demons that they've not been able to keep the gospel out of Galatia and other regions like that. And so sly devil that he is, he thinks, I'll use a different strategy. I'm just going to go along with the flow. He's going to try to appear to actually be with Paul's team and take credit for Paul's successes. Uh, if he can associate with and infiltrate the true faith, he can do more damage from within than he can from outside. So why not be uh, appearing to be a messenger of the gospel? So he makes the girl cry out, these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Demons can tell the truth. Some people say demons always lie. Well, they're always using the truth to lie, but they can tell the truth. They told the truth to Jesus. They actually quoted, Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus when he tempted him, right? And on another, uh, other occasions, it says in Mark 3.11, the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the Son of God. Now, you might think Jesus would like that. This is good advertising. Everybody's going to know. No, Jesus did not like it at all. And he told him to be quiet and to come, out, <coughs> to come out of the person. So demons can sometimes tell the truth for deceptive purposes. And by telling the truth in strategic ways, Satan's trying to gain credibility. See, if you just tell error, people aren't going to believe it. You mix truth, just enough truth with the error, it might become believable, but in doing so, he could chase some people away because there were a lot of Greeks and Romans who were scared to death by the power that was displayed in these demons 
They didn't even want to get close to this stuff. And so if they're scared of Python, Python's associated with the gospel, they may clear away from the gospel. On the other hand, there may be other people who like divination and they may think, hey, I can hold to the gospel and I can hold to divination. That's exactly what Simon Magus tried to do in Acts chapter 8. And this has been Satan's strategy all down through history. He has tried to infiltrate the church and enable people within the church feel like they can hold on to the world and still be saved, that they can uh, benefit, have benefits of Python and benefits of the gospel, and they're doubly damned in their deception. Well, this greatly irritates Paul, and I want you to notice something in verse 18. He didn't instantly jump into confronting the demon. I just find that very interesting. It says, and this she did for many days. Why didn't Paul instantly confront this demon? Uh, that's what a lot of people nowadays do. You know, why did he wait for so many days? I, I see so many people who deal with the demonic. You know, they see somebody's demonized. This guy doesn't even want your involvement. They're going in trying to confront demons. And what does Scripture say? You know, you cast a demon out and uh, there's nothing to replace it. You know, it brings seven worse to come back in, right? And so I just don't think it's a good strategy that many people use. Paul waited. What was he waiting for? I think he's waiting for God's guidance, his green light. The only power we have is the power of God. Unless the Lord guides us to do something, it's fruitless for us to try. Now back up to verse 16, and I also want you to see that Paul realizes the critical need of prayer. He says, Now it happened as we went to prayer. Now, there hasn't been a confrontation yet, but Paul's going into a brand new region. He knows it's controlled by demons. He knows he needs prayer cover. And so the whole church, one of the first things that they engage in is spiritual warfare prayer. Now, no doubt they're confessing their sins. They're asking for God's guidance. They're asking for protection. But it is the height of foolishness to try to go into battle without having prayer covering. Anytime people go into, they're called by God to go into high-level spiritual confrontations, they bathe that city and that whole region in prayer for quite a period of time uh, beforehand. And even when I've gone in on low-level uh, uh, spiritual warfare, that's the only kind I've been involved in, before I try to cast out any demons, I ask people to pray for me. I want a prayer cover. I make sure I'm fessed up and all of my... Uh, sins and and uh, I, I try to make sure that I have the power of God when I'm going in. If you've grieved the Holy Spirit of God, you don't have any power over Satan. The only power we have is the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have His power, you are in deep d danger when you're confronting the demonic. And I have known uh, numerous uh, um, uh, missionaries and pastors who have been plagued by the very demon they have been trying to cast out. Why? Because they did not confess their sins. They were rebelling against God, deliberately holding on to their sins, which meant they were totally powerless. Now, once they confessed their sins, they were renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit and they lost the afflictions that they, that, that they had previously had. And so if prayerlessness shows our uh, pride and self-sufficiency, in effect, at saying, hey, I can do this on my own, a prayer-saturated life shows humility and dependence upon God. Such a humble spirit says with Moses, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Exodus 33, verse 15. 
I believe that there is a perfect timing for everything. And what Paul is waiting for is God's green light. His timing is best. Now, why does God wait so long? Um, we only have hints of it, but I believe it's for two reasons. First of all, uh, throughout this period as he's going through the city, all of the people can't help but hear that uh, uh, all of this message that's going on and it sets up a confrontation between the two so that the whole city can see Jehovah is far more powerful than Python. So I think that's the first reason. The second reason is God wants them thrown in jail because he's got an elect person, a jailer in there that needs to be saved. How else is he going to get them into jail? So God has his plans. He has his purposes here. Another thing that I learned from this passage is that it is proper to be annoyed with Satan. Verse 18 continues, But Paul being greatly annoyed. Do you get annoyed over the works of Satan? You should. You know, Paul was constantly troubled, distressed in his spirit when he saw idolatry in the land. In chapter 17, verse 16, it says, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. It is a sign of health when we are confronted with the idols and the gross sins of our nation and we're provoked, we're annoyed, we're grieved in our spirit and there is something wrong with our Christianity when it doesn't bother us at all. We just go on with life and we're cheerful. We don't have any problems when we see these things. You see, even Lot who was compromised. I think everybody agrees. Lot was a pretty compromised Christian. But even he was tormented and troubled and vexed in his spirit when he saw sin. And here's what Second uh, uh, Peter eight uh, 2 verse 8 says. Lot dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And in context, he's showing this shows evidence that he was a true believer. Well, what does that mean when we don't aren't vexed within our spirit, okay? It's a good indicator when you are annoyed with righteous indignation that Satan's having a heyday in our country. Notice, too, that Paul directly addresses the demon. This is very instructive to me because there's a huge controversy in the church over this. Uh, there's one group of people, and they tend to be the people who are actually on the street doing the work, who speak directly to the demon, command them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to get out. And then there's others and they tend to be people who have never ever met a demon or at least confronted a demon head on. They're theoreticians who say, no, no, you can never speak to a demon. All you can do is pray to God. Uh, in fact, I've got a book by a Reformed writer. Poitras is his name. He, he, he calls the book Power Encounters. And he admits that in the New Testament they did it, but he says, that's for New Testament times. We're never allowed to confront demons. All you have to do is read through the Gospels and the book of Acts and you can see Jesus and the apostles over and over again directly speaking to a demon, confronting it, commanding it uh, to come out. Now, Poitras and others will say, yeah, but Jesus was God. Well, yeah, he's God. But he cast out demons as our example and he told the apostles to imitate him. He didn't want them to imitate being God. Okay? He, he wanted them to imitate him. And then in Luke chapter 10, he commands the 70 disciples to do exactly the same thing. They're not apostles. And he commands them to, uh, to uh, uh, command the demons to, to, to live. And so I side with the vast majority of those who actually work with the demonized, who aren't just uh, theoreticians, 
in saying it's perfectly appropriate to command demons to leave, and if you don't, they probably won't. That's my view. Now, if you've been taught otherwise, I'd be happy to dialogue with you on that, but Poitras is just flat out wrong. I think his book is just a dangerous contribution to the subject, and I give you a point-by-point refutation of his positions. But this would be one verse. Notice that Paul has no authority in himself. Verse 18 says, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Everything must be done in the name of Jesus. Everything. Every blessing we have, all power we have, it's banked for us in a bank called Jesus in the heavenly places. And it's faith that receives that, but you must sign the check in the name of Jesus. Here's what Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Demons won't listen to you if you do not come in the name and in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have authority in yourself. Notice that verse 18 says, And He came out that very hour. By saying that very hour, instead of by saying that very moment, it may imply, not necessarily, but it may imply that there was a tussle because demons don't always come out on the first command. Uh, Even Jesus, sometimes the demons would argue with him. And you can see that in the Gospels. Uh, That may just be an implication here, but definitely this shows the power of God working through Paul to conquer the stranglehold that this powerful demon had over a young girl's life. Now, the last thing I want to quickly point out is that there will always be backlash when you engage in power encounters. Okay, you can count on it. As long as the girl was making the master's money, they left Paul alone. But verse 19 says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, this demon had no power to not come out of the girl, but this demon had all kinds of other demons under his control, and he could move people to attack Paul. Now, as long as they're making a profit, it says here that they, uh, they did not bother him, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authority. They're just really ticked off with a lost investment. But I believe ultimately they're pawns in Satan's hands. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says this, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In his commentary on the passage, William Hendrickson says, Just how did Satan do this? By influencing the minds of Polytarchs at Thessalonica so that they would have caused Jason to forfeit his bond in case the missionaries had returned? by bringing about sufficient amount of tangible trouble elsewhere so that neither Paul alone nor all three were able to return. The fact as such that Satan exerts a powerful influence over the affairs of men, especially when they endeavor to promote the interests of the kingdom of God, is sufficiently clear from other passages. And he goes on to give some scriptures that say, we're not really wrestling ultimately with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with spiritual demonic Now, we need to keep that in mind when bills come out of the Nebraska legislature like LB 1141. It has the marks, fingerprints of Satan all over that bill. And we need to recognize it's not just the stupidity of people that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a spiritual warfare. Uh, Just as this girl's masters were in reality Satan's pawns, 
Some of the tyrannical masters, not all of them, but some of the tyrannical masters we have in Nebraska and in Washington, D.C. are simply pawns in Satan's hands, spirits that hover around them and influence them. Notice how this demon and his minions use the magistrates to impose control over the situation. See, Satan can never win a debate, an honest debate, on an even playing field. If it's just truth against all of his lies, the truth will win, hands down. But what does Satan do when he loses an argument? He resorts to force. He always has the force of the government, of of, of the sword, you know, in his back pocket. And we ought not to be surprised when homosexuals and others try to use the force of civil magistrate to ram their agendas down our throat when they cannot convince us. And it's such persecution that he raises up in verse 19. Then quickly on to verses 20 to 21, we see them appealing to the edict of Claudius. Chapter 18, verse 2 refers to that edict, but it happened the year before. It says, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. The law he appeals to was the was given 49 A.D., the year before, by Emperor Claudius, which evicted all Jews from Rome and by implication from all of Rome's extensions. We saw last week that colonies like Philippi were considered extensions of Rome, and as such, any edict that applied to Rome would equally apply to the uh, to the colonies. And so, what was happening here is that. Um, it was illegal for any Jews to be in the city. Paul and his team are Jews, so they're in trouble. Now, just as a side note, this is one of many verses that could be used to justify illegally going into a country to bring the gospel. Uh, Paul's team was violating the emperor's edict that had been published the year before. And since it had been published the year before, Paul could not plead ignorance. This was deliberate. You see, God's command to take the gospel into all the world supersedes, it trumps all man's laws. Brother Andrew, the Bible's uh, smuggler, has been under constant criticism down through the years by ignorant evangelicals for doing something that is illegal. Well, every time the gospel penetrates new countries, it had to. It had to by, by definition. Uh, But anyway, he stands in a good tradition of the apostles and 2,000 years of church history. Now, verse 22 shows the entire mob being incited. Then the multitude rose up together against them. Uh, Crowds can be easily incited, manipulated into violence through false information. That's the reason why many lynchings are later on regretted, uh, even though in the passion of the moment, you know, the crowds delighted in doing Uh, irrational things, then the excitement of the crowd gets the magistrate to side with them. And it's true to this day. Many times, magistrates will make their edicts based on the mood of the populace. And then when you've got the majority and the magistrate against an individual, there are times where even Christians will say, well, he must must have done something wrong. And I think this passage ought to make us have real caution when we think that way. There are people who just get inflamed when they hear something in a political realm and they immediately take sides without ever hearing the other side. Scripture says that, uh, let me quote it exactly, the first person to plead a cause seems right 
until his neighbor comes and examines him. And we shouldn't make judgments against Christians uh, without examining all the evidence. For example, there are, there are people who have made judgments against the two women who are locked up in jail in Lincoln uh, for a one-minute confrontation that they had with um, a pro-abortion doctor. And there are people, just because the civil magistrate and the media paints them as being bad, automatically, well, they must have done something wrong, and they just assume that that's the case. And I think this is a passage that warns us you know, we need to have caution. Then they're beaten. The magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, if you've read much about caning in Singapore, you know that Paul and Silas must have been in excruciating pain. Uh, ministering in the power of God, and they definitely were ministering in the power of God, does not mean you're not going to suffer. Christians are not exempt from suffering. In fact, according to the Bible, it is a glory to be able to suffer for Christ. Paul says we're filling up the sufferings of Christ. We're laying up for ourselves uh, treasures in heaven. And then they're imprisoned. Verses 23 through 24. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, they're already in excruciating pain from the caning but they have no way of having their wounds being cleansed and bandages put on or anything like that. They're thrown into a filthy cell. They're put into stocks. Now, stocks are painful without being caned because your feet were spread apart. They were shackled into these things. It, it kind of put pressure on your joints. So by the next day, you could hardly walk. It was really, really painful. Now, that's the context for the next sermon, whenever I'm going to preach on the next uh, um, passage, because I think the next two weeks we might do, do something else. But what the next passage, what is Paul doing? He's giving praises to God. Could you praise God in those kinds of circumstances? That's a good question to ask. I don't think in ourselves we could. But you see, we're indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same uh, spirit who rose up Jesus from the dead is at work in your mortal bodies, Paul said. And he can give you a supernatural joy, a supernatural peace that is not dependent upon circumstances. And that's what we need to long for. And that's what we need to pray for. Now, in all of this, it may have looked like Paul round, won round one, casting out the demon. Satan won round two, gets them beaten, thrown into jail, kicked out of the city. But you know what? God was all a part of this plan to get uh, the jailer converted, move him on to the next city where he had to be to preach the gospel. God's in total control of that. And here's the question that I have. Are you willing to face such suffering if you knew for a fact that God is winning rounds one, two, three, four, five, all of the rounds? Would you be willing to suffer? See, if we could raise up a Gideon's army of men, women, and children who are sold out for Jesus and willing to face anything for Jesus, we could turn our nation around just like Macedonia and Greece were completely conquered uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I don't think Satan is any match for a church that's full of the Holy Spirit and that is careless for its own well-being. I think that's a key point. Careless for its own well-being. And I want to be such a saint... And it's my prayer that you will be such saints so that we can take on the strongholds of our own city and uh, see them defeated. And may God receive the glory. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word and the encouragement that it brings to us. And I pray 
that we would do warfare according to Your Word, that we would uh, find uh, faith uh, stirred up within us as we read Your Word. And Father, that uh, being a people of faith, uh, we would, as Daniel says, do exploits, great exploits. This is our desire, Father, to do exploits in the city of Omaha and Council Bluffs and the regions round about here. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.